1973 episode, we get stuck into the 10-year rule in a bit more detail and look at the big moves the Kangaroos make in exploiting this rule. Kevin Murray reaches not one but two milestones this season. The Hawks, in a desperate move late in the season, call for help from above. And the Cats also look to a past champion to turn their trajectory around. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We have no real qualifications to bring you this show other than a thirst for knowledge, a desire to relive the past and lots and lots of books. My name is Tim, this is Charlie, uh, and we're here to talk about 1973, Charlie. Yes! A lot's changed since 1972. We're we're so much into the 70s now. Like it just feels like yesterday we were in 1970, but now we're, we're fully into it. Um, and you might have noticed uh, Kazman hasn't been here much recently. He's a, he's a busy man. He'll pop in and out when he can at the moment. Absolutely, um, yes. We're trying to soldier on without him. We miss him dearly. Yeah, and with our new format where we're trying to put out episodes every week, um, he's not always available. So, yeah. you know, we have him in reserve off the, on the bench. Ready to go in. in. Wearing, the, uh, wearing the vest. Ready yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, so, 1973, a big year. Uh, before you give us some history, Charlie. Yeah. Song of the Year was You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Ah. Number, number one in Australia for seven weeks. Written about John Coleman, I believe. <laughs> um, also of note was Killing Me Softly, Delta Dawn and Angie. Ah. Good. Yeah. Some rippers. Ab- absolute bangers. Yeah. Love that. Oh, well, let's get into some events of 1973. On the very 1st of January, in uh, some sports news, American sports news here, uh, CBS sold the New York Yankees for $10 million to a 12 person syndicate led by George Steinbrenner. It seems very cheap nowadays. Doesn't it? Uh, well, back then it was a lot of even cheap at the time, it was $3.2 million less than they paid for the Yankees. So they've gone down in value. Were they in the middle of a slump at that stage? I don't think they were looking that great in their thing because there was a bit going on. Uh, On the 14th of January, we had the Dolphins, the Miami Dolphins, completing the first and only perfect season in NFL history. Undefeated? Undefeated, completely. Remember the Patriots almost did it about 15 years ago. That, yeah, and that's it. By, so they defeated the Redskins 14-7 in Super Bowl uh, seven at the LA Coliseum. Um, so yeah, that that game clinched it for them. Unbelievable. On the 22nd of, of Jan, just after that, we had George Foreman defeating Joe Frazier to win the Heavyweight World Boxing Championship. Great game, great match. Uh, on the 28th of Feb, uh, in Australia, a bit of just general news, the federal voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. It's which, been so ever since. Yes, and it had already been like that in New South Wales for a couple of years. Okay. On the 3rd of March, we had Tottenham Hotspur winning the Football League Cup final at Wembley, beating Norwich City 1-0. On the 27th of March, the Godfather won Best Picture at the 45th Academy Awards. On the 5th of May, at Sunderland beating Leeds United in the 1973 FA Cup final. Uh, 10th of May, 
We had the Knicks defeating the Lakers in the NBA, 102-93 in Game 5 of the Finals to win the NBA title. Their last NBA title. The Knicks' last title in 73, really? On the 9th of September, we had uh, the Scottish racing driver Jackie Stewart becoming the World Drivers' Champion when his Tyrrell 003 Cosworth placed fourth in the uh, Monza Italian Grand, Grand Prix. On the 20th of September, we had the Battle of the Sexes. Billie Jean King defeating Bobby Riggs oh, nice. in the televised tennis match. So 6-4-6-4-6-3 at the Astrodome in Houston. So apparently, with an attendance of 30,492, it's still the largest live audience to ever see a tennis match in US history. The global audience um, for, the, for the viewing of that uh, game in 36 countries was estimated in 90 million people. There was actually an, a match earlier in the year that uh, Bobby Riggs played and beat Margaret Court, which kind of set up the Battle of the Sexes, this big one. You know. And there's a movie, isn't there? So yes, Steve, with Steve Carell and... Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the 21st of September, Blue Poles, the Jackson Pollock painting, was controversially purchased by the Whitlam government for $2 million. And jeez, what a steal that yeah. is now. Uh, back to the Yankees on the 30th of September, um, the house that Ruth built, Yankee Stadium, was closed for a two-year renovation at a cost of $160 million. They played all their home games at Shea Stadium in 74 and 75. On the 20th of October, we had the Sydney Opera House officially opened by Queen Elizabeth II. Finally. Yeah, I know. Finally got there. Uh, also in other sports news, Western Australia won the Sheffield Shield. And Gala Supreme took out the Melbourne Cup. Would you like to hear about some Australians who were born Please. this year? Uh, we've got James Hurt. George uh, Gregan, the uh, rugby, rugby union player. player. Great man. Gordon Tallis, the rugby league footballer. Susie O'Neill and Kieran Perkins, swimmers. Uh, first one on 2nd of August. Kieran on the 14th. We've got Stephen Bradbury, <laughs> the great speed skater and first Winter Olympic gold medalist for Australia on the 14th of October, and also Kathy Freeman. Yeah, we're really Wonderful. closing in on people that are our age, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I know. It's catching us. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah. All right, let's get to some league news. So, a few big things here. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Right, um, so there was a $10,000 initiative for full forwards this year um, to see to anyone who could break Bob Pratt's record of 150 goals in the season. Really? I couldn't work out who had accepted, who set that incentive, but yeah. Does anyone need that as an extra incentive to try and kick as many goals as possible? Interesting. Yeah, no. And it's, it's really interesting, like, do you put self-glory over team glory yeah. in that case? That's really interesting. Um, the centre diamond was used and introduced in 1973 oh. as well. So sides were 45 metres long. Um, so it was we had the centre square now. This was yep. a diamond. Yeah. With the rules being only four players from each team permitted in at centre bounces. So this is the precursor to the centre square. To the square, yeah. yeah. And we still haven't got 50 metre arcs at this point either. No. Yeah. So we've just got a diamond got in a the diamond. middle of the ground. Yep, diamond in the middle. Um, 
In March, there was controversy with the VFL about finals matches being played at Waverley, uh, and this led to a suggestion that Melbourne, Richmond, and Collingwood um, might launch a breakaway competition. Ooh. Because they were not happy. Specifically, Richmond were not happy with this. The MCCFL. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it did not eventuate, obviously. No. Um, we but want... what, so where, does that, where was that stemming from, the fact that they just didn't want to play at Waverley? Yeah, the a little bit of that. The grounds were no good. Yeah, and um, just like uh, Richmond at this stage like to be at odds with the league. They like to cause some headlines pre-season to Why get not? their name just out stir there. Things to, up. Yeah, to, to stir things up and get people thinking about Richmond. It was actually, <laughs> it was legitimately one of their tactics was to to cause dissension and, and try to like... Get their name Get going. their name in the paper. Interesting. That whole, uh, you know, any news is good news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a bit more about the 10-year rule though, Charlie. Yes, so this was brought about because of a situation in New South Wales. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, advice came about from the legal counsel following a restraint of t- trade case heard against the uh, NSWR, the New South Wales Rugby League in the High Court. So it's centred on um, a player, Dennis Tuddy, who played with Balmain. Uh, he began his playing career in 64, and although... Um, the NSWRL was a semi-professional competition. He played as an amateur so he could compete in uh, rowing competitions as well. So in 68, he relinquished his amateur status and he was unhappy with his match payments and he applied for a clearance to play with another club. But under the current, the way the NSWRL rules stood, players could move to another club only with permission of their current club. Uh, and Tuddy's request for a transfer was refused. So he lodged an appeal but withdrew it when Balmain agreed to give him a pay rise. He played out the season, but then at the end of that year, he sought a clearance again, and it was again refused. But instead of seeking a new contract or wanting a change, he decided not only just to sit out the 69 season, which we've seen happen in the the VFL as well, but he also took a legal action against them. So yeah. it sort of precipitated it. So a lot of that stuff is exactly what's happening in the VFL at this stage. Absolutely. Wanting clearances, not being given them, having to sit out. And so, yeah, he's he's fighting against it. And so that's sort of brought it about. And so this legal act, this threat of legal action has made the VFL go, oh, we, should, we probably need to address this at some yeah. stage. So, so they brought in this. the 10-year rule. Yeah. Which is uh, any players who have played for 10 years are free to get cleared to any club of their choice. Without ha- being a, without needing the tick of approval from their club. Yep. Yep. Um, so here's where North Melbourne kind of come in. So El, Mon- <laughs> El-, El Montello was on the board as North's representative and he heard this was coming. So he'd worded up the, the people at North Melbourne said, like, this, this is coming. This is our chance to strike. This is what we need to do. But, um, so they had, the, they had their targets. They knew what they were doing. So, But when they voted, when the VFL delegates voted, Al Montello argued and voted against it because he didn't want to raise suspicion. Uh. <laughs> and so when the vote actually passed, so it was passed 11 votes to one, with Al Montello being the one who didn't want it because he wanted to deflect from North Melbourne's actual plan because yep. they were ahead of the game here. Genius. Um, and obviously he knew that his vote was going to mean nothing as it obviously yeah, didn't. Yeah. yeah. So quite shifty there and I quite I like it. Yeah. Um, so 22 VFL players were eligible to move clubs. Only 22 out of the whole league. Yep. Uh, only six players took advantage of this new, new rule and the rule was rescinded in May 1973 because as we'll hear, North Melbourne were so brazen with their poaching of several big names, the club started to panic and the rule, yeah, was scrapped. It only lasted nine months. You're kidding. But the damage was So done. hang on. So 22 players were eligible. Yep. Ten. Six. Six, six took six, it up. Yep. 
How many of those six went to North Melbourne? Three. Three. So okay. half. Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk about the other ones as well because Melbourne get involved. Yes, but that's in, it's just interesting to think. So of half the players that took advantage on the... Yeah, half of them went to North. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's now, a big overreaction to can the rule just because of three oh, can't players. Can't you imagine the clubs panicking though? Oh, the rich clubs are going to come and take our players. Yeah, yeah. but it wasn't. They, can't, they went to North Melbourne. Yeah. Yes, true. <laughs> but then... Like Melbourne got involved, Collingwood got involved, yeah. the dogs got involved, yeah. and there would have been like, well, if North Melbourne's doing this, what's Collingwood going to do next season, or what's yeah. one of the bigger cl- Richmond going to do next season? Yeah, so yeah. you could see where the panic was going to yeah. set in. So they hadn't expected this, and this is what happened, and it played perfectly for North Melbourne, which we'll talk about when we get to North Melbourne. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, Charlie, is the tragic death of Norm Smith. Yes, um, fifty-seven years old. He died on the 29th of July, nineteen seventy-three, of a cerebral tumor. Yes. Which he'd had for quite a while. Um, unbeknownst to him, he, he discovered it, I think, in the 70, just prior to the 73 season and went downhill pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but an absolute legend lost yeah. to the game. And so quickly. So young, just like his brother. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, from, from being at the peak of his powers and still in control of a football club to... The year before, yeah. The year before. Yeah. To, to gone. Yeah. Like, there's... You know, you'd think think of someone like him now. The the decades of having him as a pundit. I oh, think of Ron Brassie get. now. Yeah, exactly. Like it's been it's been years since Brassie coached. Yeah, but he's still kicking around. Yeah, yeah. For him to miss all that. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Um. At some stage, we'd like to do a proper episode, probably focusing on Norm, and would would like to chat to uh, Adam, the guy who wrote the book. Um. And yeah, have a, de- a dedicated episode about that. Ben Collins is the author. Um, chat to him about the book and like we did with Jock McHale when we talked about Jock McHale. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think that'd be really nice to yeah. talk to, to. We'll just spend some time on on everything that he did. Yeah, yeah, game changer. All right, Charlie, let's go up this ladder, starting from twelfth. Let's do it. So at the very bottom of this ladder, in twelfth spot, uh, South Melbourne, unfortunately, with four wins and eighteen losses, a percentage of seventy nine. Uh, coached by Graham John and captained by Peter Beckford. Yeah, Graham John coming in to replace Norm Smith. Norm Smith. Um, debutants include Barry Beercroft, Ian Thompson, Vic Arneson, Jeff Craighead and Ted Obudzinski. Uh, pre-season, North Melbourne actually had 11 players from Papua New Guinea training with them. Oh, cool. None of them made the cut, but um, interesting to see they're looking... Looking further than Western Australia for their talent. (laughs) Um, And as well as Norm Smith leaving, they also lost John Rantel to North Melbourne in the 10-year rule. And there's a reason they lost him, but we might talk about that when we get to North. Yep. Season started disastrously. They had a big loss to the Magpies, and the season seemed to go from bad to worse. The closest win they got was a 17-point loss to the Bulldogs. Their average losses across the first... 13 weeks was uh, 39 points. Yeah, wow. But round two, like things looked all right. The signs were good. They kicked their highest score f- since 1971, 15 goals, 19, 109. Uh, in round six, the coach was upbeat after a 44-point loss to North. Um, he said, the potential is there. So far, we've just lacked the experienced player to kick the vital goal. I'm not disappointed I took the job. I would be if I could see no light through the forest. But just remember, we've had a bad run of injuries. Mm-hmm. So after 29 losses straight, so 16 to N72 and 13 this season, the Swans finally got a win in round 14 over Geelong at Lakeside Oval. Ooh. 
Uh, Jim Prentice kicked five for the Swans. Uh, new captain Peter Bedford chimed in with three. The Swans fans partied long into the night, singing <laughs> the theme song over and over. Um, Coach Graham John was mobbed by well wishes for winning one game. Nice. Um, at halftime the following week against the Dogs, a similar pattern seemed to befall the Swans as they trailed by a goal. However, their small men began to dominate in the third and they kicked 13 of the next 16 goals to run away with a 62-point win. Stuart Gull with five and Steve Hoffman best on ground with 33. They put up a fight the next week against the Saints. They went down by seven. Uh, and a similar win they had two weeks later against the Kangaroos. The game was close for a half, but they again took control late in the game. Peter Bedford kicked six goals along with his 26 disposals. John Petura with 30 possessions, who was having a really good season. The Swans kicked six goals in the third to take control to run out 39-point winners. Um, now, in the lead-up to the round 18 match, uh, former coach Norm Smith passed away from that branch and we talked about. So it was quite fitting that the Swans would come up against the Demons. Yes. I mean, not, not the Lions. He coached the Lions as well. Um, so the Swans played the Demons. The Demons could not kick a goal in the first quarter and trail at every change. The margin was as much as 25 in three-quarter time. Before Melbourne did launch a belated comeback, they held North to one goal in the last and kicked three quick goals themselves. To get back in the game, it ultimately fell eight points short. Uh, Peter Bedford with another five goals in this game, but that was their final win of the season, which uh, probably didn't end as disastrously as it started, but still not the best. No. Yeah. What, oh, that's so interesting that that's when they played each other. Yeah. Yeah. Poetic. There you go. Very poetic, yeah. So uh, lead goal kicker for South uh, this year, it's not surprising that it was Peter Bedford. Uh, he also took out his fourth uh Bob's Kilt medal in 73. He's, yeah, fourth in five years. Pretty, pretty Bob's Kilt numbers. Yeah, seriously. Mm. Uh, amazing. So that takes us up the ladder to Geelong. Mm. Uh, not surprising, considering they're the one team that uh, South was able to beat. Or one of the teams that South was able to beat. Uh, so six wins, 16 losses, and a percentage of 78.4. So when they did lose, they got dropped. <laughs> uh, coached by Polly Farmer yeah. back and um, captained by Jeff Ainsworth. It's so interesting because Polly Farmer had moved back to Geelong, I think, the previous year just because he liked living in Geelong, not with the purpose of coaching. Yeah. And then he kind of fell into it. Well, yeah, because, it's not surprising that yeah. they pulled him back when he was around. Yeah. Some debutants include Ian Lutas and Jumping Jack Hawkins. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, Tom's father. Tom's father, yeah. yeah. The Cats came up against Carlton, Richmond and Collingwood in the first three games, losing all three. So, I mean, no surprise when you're playing last year's, some yeah. of last year's finalists. Yeah. Round one was also Sam Newman's 150th game. Their first win of the season was round four. In the first part of this match with South Melbourne, the Cats were poor, playing with no enthusiasm. But then in the second half, everyone suddenly got behind each other. The defenders kept South goalless in the third, with young jumping Jack Hawkins playing well. While the Cats kicked six goals to take control of the match, they ended up with 32-point winners. But this was their only win in the first 10 matches, which caused a, a crisis point where some in the Geelong camp attempted to convince Polly Farmer to make a comeback. Really? Polly Farmer said he, uh, his wife would have to be convinced. <laughs> so the, the board members went to his wife and she was not convinced, which is probably for the best in the end because you don't want an unfit, underdone Polly Farmer coming in to try to battle no. a team that's down the bottom of the ladder. That would have been a sad footnote to what is an excellent legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't need him doing a um uh a Kazali. No. And, you know, yeah. Uh, round 11 saw the Lions visit in what was Kevin Murray's 300th game. 
The Cats dominated the general play so much so that Sam Newman, who had ankle issues, handballed 90% of the time and they still couldn't stop him. <laughs> the Cats beat them to the ball time and again and ended up winning by 23 points. Um, in Geelong's round 14 loss to the Magpies, Jack Hawkins was shifted to full forward and seemed quite good there, kicking three goals. So worth a note. They took on the Bombers at home in round 16, and in this game, the Cats finally showed the bravery and determination Polly Farmer was looking for. The Cats got up by one point, and David Clark led the way he with six goals. The margin was the same two weeks later against the Hawks. The Cats struggled early, but um, and they let the Hawks open up a 26-point lead, but they persisted and finally overhauled the Hawks when Phil Stevens kicked a last gasp goal to give them the win. Then at Waverley against St Kilda, the Cats played a contrasting style across this game with goals hard to come by early, but neither team was firing. The Cats kicked into gear in the second half, and although the Saints took the lead in the last quarter, the Cats reeled them in. With Robert Watman and Mike Woolner bolstering their flows from the wing, the Cats won by three points. And their final win of the season uh, was against the Demons. Uh, the Demons held the lead early with Kyle Ditterich and Callery, Paul Callery dominating, but with six goals to two after the break, the Cats took the game away from them and ran out 15-point winners. Mm. That's there. That's, that, the, cat that's the cats. Yeah. Uh, so, the cats' lead goal kicker was David Clark this year with forty-five, and the Kaji Greaves medal in seventy-three went to Bruce Nankervis after going to Ian Nankervis last year. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Just you know, just change the first name. Easy. Uh, so that takes us up the ladder to tenth spot. Where sit those lowly demons? <laughs> lowly. Unfortunately. So, this year, seven wins, 15 losses, 91.8%. So, not a bad percentage for a team that's getting absolutely done. Uh, coached again by Tiger Ridley and captain this year by Stan Alves taking Lovely. over. Yeah. Saw him uh, last weekend helping raise that mighty 21 premiership flag. He did. It's good to see. We're going to talk about him in a minute. Um, some debutants include Glenn Swan... Frank Giapolo and one big name for Melbourne, Robbie Flower. Oh, one of the biggest names. Tell us about him, Charlie. Small body, big name. <laughs> uh, so, the frail, short-sighted Flower was nobody's vision of a superstar footballer, but rose through the ranks to become one of Melbourne's greatest ever players. His particular trademark was his almost implausible, in- evasive ability. Somewhat like Gumby, some would say. <laughs> Uh, a skill which stood him in good stead as he was often the target of unseemly opposition assaults. It took position to get to Melbourne in the, uh, persistence to get to Melbourne in the first place. He was rejected by the club he'd supported his whole life numerous times before finally being offered a trial with the fourths in 71. A dispute with junior side Murrumbina meant he wasn't allowed to play that season and he finally pulled on the red and the blue the following year. Uh, just over 12 months later, he was a senior footballer in a year where he'd also played for Melbourne High. So, I mean, we'll talk about his career as it comes, but got to be one of the all-time greats to play a single final, I yeah, believe. him and Bobby Skilton. Yeah. Yeah. And he got injured in that final as well. He did, yeah. right at the end. Yeah. So, pretty, yeah, amazing. And, you're, yeah, that's, that's hit it on the head. Like, you look at him and you're like, that guy's not an yeah. a VFL footballer. Yeah. It couldn't be. So, yeah, incredible. So, pre-season, the Demons were one of those teams who signed a 10-year contract player. Ah, they yes. signed Carl Ditterich because they offered him big, big, big money. However, this rankled uh, veteran Stan Elves, who had been elevated to captain and was negotiating his... His contract. His contract. He was told by the board that there wasn't much money, so he kind of settled for quite a low ball offer. 
Then later that night, he heard that Carl Diderich had arrived on massive money. So they've made the same mistake twice in only a couple of years. Mm. Remember we talked about... Um, Diamond Jim. Diamond Jim. Yeah. And how that put everyone's nose out yep. and did nothing. And yeah, that's they haven't learnt from the history. No. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, Diderich, big name player, but is he worth what's happening here? Well, yeah. Uh, round one was a loss to the Saints, and as a result, Ian Ridley blasted his players and was rewarded in round two with a fighting come-from-behind victory at Glenferry Oval. After having been behind all day, best on ground, Greg Wells helped lift them over the line in the last term, uh, where the lead changed five times. His goal at the 27-minute mark gave the Ds the lead before Ross Brew extended the margin at the 30-minute mark. The siren was celebrated by a frenzied ground invasion of young Demon supporters. The only problem was that Hawk Wayne Bevan was still trying to kick for a goal. The result didn't hinge on his finish, and he was still... He still converted despite the ground being swamped by children <laughs> to make the final margin less than a goal. Uh, Melbourne's first win at Glen Ferry since 1967. Also, it wouldn't just be kids on the ground. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Uh, There's no way. In round four, Carl Ditterich, after a few poor games, finally played a decent game for the Demons against the Lions on a day which had been marred by behind-the-play brawls and an all-in melee during the third quarter. The lead changed nine times during the day and was level four times in the last quarter. It was a horrible blooper by Fitzroy's Renato Serafini, which cost the team. He was set to pump the ball into the forward line, but he miskicked and landed in the arms of Trevor Rowlandson, who went forward to Demon Ross Brewer to boot his sixth goal of the day, giving the Ds a seven-point win. Their next win was round seven when the Swan, they beat the Swans by 28 in what Ridley described as a rotten game of football. From round nine, they went on a three-game winning streak, kicking that off at the Western Oval. After a low-scoring opening half with neither team gaining much advantage of the wind, Melbourne kicked five goals in a row to open the third quarter, including three to Elves. But the Dogs stayed in touch, and despite being five goals down at the last change, they did storm back into this game. In the tense final moments with the scores level, a mark and goal from Peter Dillnot, which would, would turn out to be his last kick in league football, put the Demons in front, and they held on to win by one goal. Round 10 against the Cats was a grand day for many reasons. A huge 58-point win for the Ds was built on the form of two youngsters, being Robbie Flower debuting with a bang and Glenn Swan, who kicked eight goals in just his fifth game. Nice. Along with this, Greg Wells had 44 possessions, while John Tilbrook, Diamond Jim, was also potent with six goals from the half-forward flank. Stan Elves kicked two goals and set up Swan on numerous occasions. Uh, the new full forward booted five goals in the third quarter as the Ds piled on five in eight minutes to blow the Cats away. Three in a row against Barassi's Kangaroos. Mm, Although Ian Ridley had been forced to blast his side at halftime when they were two goals down, the Ds stormed home to win in the last quarter with three-quarter time substitute John Clennant dominating the ruck in the last quarter with four goals to one, running out nine-point winners. The Ds' final win of the season was round 14 against the Lions and they opened the game in style with nine straight goals to the Lions' 4-5. So same amount of scoring shots, but just accuracy. Yeah. By the end of the third term, the Lions had made a small comeback and were three goals down, but in the end, the immense contribution of the Ditterich-Keenan-Ruck combination, along with midfielders Paul Callery and Stan Ells, got the Demons a 37-point win. Now, the final game of the season uh, was a loss to the Kangaroos, but conspiracy theorists claim the Demons were robbed. Oh, I love this. Greg McDonald kicked the ball off the ground in the last quarter. It was clearly a goal, but paid a point. And not long after this, Robbie Flower kicked the ball through the goals, which hit John Clennant a yard behind the goal line and was paid as touched. They lost this game by five points. So should have... Two goals that... Yeah, wow. Should have given them the win. Um, Post-season, Ian Ridley was sacked. 
leading to a player revolt where several senior players had to be lured back to the club after threatening to quit over the decision. So Peter Keenan, Crackers Keenan, Ray Biffin, Barry Burke and Greg Wales all announced they would follow Ridley out of the club before cooler heads prevailed. Burke was the only one never to play league football again. Ditterich was forced to deny that he was after the senior coaching role. So are we thinking Carl Ditterich might be a bit of a Dick Condon sort of... Sounds a bit... mm, Causing a bit of dissent. Yeah. Maybe they're just bitter at him because he's getting more money. Because he's getting heaps of cash, Mm. yeah. Very interesting. So the lead goal kicker for the D's this year was uh, Ross Brewer with 32. Stan Alves just behind him with 29. Johnny Tilbrook on a paltry 24. No, (laughs) not too bad. Uh, And uh, the... Bluey Truscott medal in 73 went to Carl Ditterich. Well, so, earning his big bucks. Absolutely. I, I call conspiracy theory. Yeah. I call they gave it to him just because they had to make it look like he'd had a good season. Yeah. He must have had a pretty good season. You can't just give it, <laughs> give it away, can you? But we'll see. Interesting. Uh, so climbing up that ladder one more step to ninth place, we have the Doggies, Footscray, with seven wins, one draw, 14 losses and 88.2%. Coached by Bob Rose and captained by David Thorpe. Yes. Um, There we go. Pre-season, the Dogs dumped Robert McGee, Bobby McGee, Bones McGee as he's known, after he was arrested for assault on the way back from the movies in Adelaide. He was put in prison for 10 days. Jeez. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Adrian Gallagher crossed as a 10-year veteran from Carlton to the Doggies. The Bulldogs' offer was simply too irresistible and Carlton couldn't match it. So after 165 games and three flags with the Blues, Gags headed to Western Oval with plenty of good football still left in him. Fair call. Yeah. The Dogs won their first match in round three. Uh, they were clearly the stronger, fitter and more experienced team in the matchup against South Melbourne. Gary Dempsey collected three hitouts, ten handballs and seven marks. And Bernie Quinlan, in his new role as Ruck Rover, gave him plenty of support. The Doggies by 17 here. Uh, they, things didn't look good taking on the Cats in round six as they were missing their two stars in Dempsey and Barry Round. The Dogs were brilliantly served, however, by Gary Baker and follower Ian Salmon, who stepped up to lead the Dogs to a three-goal win. Round seven, the Doggies won the hard way against St Kilda by hitting the front in time on and staying there by three points. The Doggies' big man power and the coolness of Adrian Gallagher stood by the side when the result was in the balance. Then they suffered nine straight defeats. Well, they had, actually, they had a draw, then they suffered nine straight defeats. Um, in round 17 against the Cats, Footscray looked anything like a bottom side, however. Gary Dempsey and Stephen Power created a drive around the ground. Laurie Sanderlands kicked nine goals. Their score of 21-15-141 was the biggest all season. Ah, interesting. Uh, the Dogs' round 20 game against the Demons. Uh, the Dogs bought their kicking boots for this game and in an excellent display in shocking conditions, kicked 17-8 to beat the Demons by 37 points. Laurie Sandilands kicking eight, uh, which led Bobby Rowe, Bob Rose to lament that he wished the club had kicked like this earlier in the season. Hmm, yeah, fair enough. The following week, the Dogs and the Blues played a match which saw casualties on both sides, including Laurie Sandilands after he had kicked five. But the desperation the Bulldogs showed and with the back line led by Bernie Quinlan and Peter Walsh, the Dogs were good enough to earn a nine-point victory over last year's Premier's and then taking on the finals-bound Tigers in the final game of the season, the Dogs applied constant pressure across the ground with the non-stop work of Ian Salmon and Gary Dempsey on full display. Scores were level five times in the last quarter, um, but Gary Dempsey was moved to full forward. He goaled twice to give the Dogs an 11-point break. This brought Royce Hart into the game. Um, 
and he brought the Tigers right back into it. But late points to Gary Steele and Glenn Gin- Jingle? Gingel? Gingel, yeah. Saw the Dogs home by one point. Adrian Gallagher matching up with 31 points against Kevin Bartlett's. Adrian Gallagher's matchup saw him earn 31 disposals against uh, KB's 27. So also one of the highlights was their individual matchup yeah, against each other. To, yeah, nice. Love that every, you know, when you see that even happen today, just yeah. a head Two to head. Two superstars go head to head. Yeah, so good. So I'm guessing uh, Gary Sand- Laurie Sandilands had to have led their goal kick. Yeah, he certainly did. With, But I was just thinking about the math. So he said he kicked 9, 8, 5. Yeah. So that's 22 goals in three games. Yeah. He kicked 34 for the season. Okay. So not a great, not a great showing for the rest of the year yeah. and not a great showing from anyone else really this year. Bernie Quinlan was second on the list with 20. Yeah. Uh, and the Charles Sutton medal in 73 went to Gary Dempsey for the second time. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, so on, an eighth, in eighth place on the ladder, we have Fitzroy with nine wins, 13 losses and 90.7%. Coached by Graham Donaldson and captained by John Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, debutants include Colin Cruz, David McMahon and Karen Hayes. Now, the Lions took on the Dogs at Junction Oval to open the season. Fitzroy was served brilliantly by their new skipper, John Murphy, who had 30 disposals. Norm Dare and Alan Thompson were also prominent in this, in what was a 50-point win, meaning the Dogs had never beaten them at their new home at Junction Oval. Ever? Nope. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, the next win was round... Oh, well, sorry, yeah, new home. Yeah, yeah only for a few seasons. Yeah. Their, new re- uh, their next win was round six against the Hawks. The Lions starting on the back foot as the Hawks jumped out to a six-goal-to-one lead. However, the Lions were able to keep the Hawks scoreless in the second quarter and again in the last run-out 22-point winners. Against South Melbourne in round nine, it was former Richmond Reserve Colin Cruz who celebrated his senior debut with a brave display of 22 disposals in the back line with Kevin Murray and Harvey Merrington also playing well. They kept the Swans goalless in that last quarter while John Murphy was huge. Uh, Lions won that by 51. Round 11 was Kevin Murray's 300th game for Fitzroy against the Cats, but the team played terribly and lost. Disappointing. God, that's incredible. A poultry crowd of 7,016 people showed up in round 12 to watch the Lions take on the Dogs at Waverley. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dogs controlled the first three quarters and held a 22-point lead, but the Lions kicked 7-3 in the last quarter to win by 14, scoring one more point in the last quarter than they had for the first three combined. Now, round 13 was another momentous day for Kevin Murray. It was his 393rd senior game in Australia, so VFL and, and w- WAFL, yep. awful, which broke Polly Farmer's record. Oh, wow. So he's played the most games in any combined senior professional league. Um, This was the day the Lions properly celebrated their legend, but unfortunately the Saints still won by 10 goals. How disappointing. Round 15, Fitzroy played a strong four-quarter effort, beginning with their defence, holding the Roos to five goals with the wind advantage early, while they added four. Then in the second, they had the wind and kicked eight goals, six to one goal, four to take a 37-point lead at the break. Murphy was his usual best, but it was Renato Serafini playing his last game for the club and Kevin Murray getting on top of Sam Kekovic that helped the Lions to a two-goal win, all but ending the Ruse finals hopes. Then taking on the reigning premiers, the Lions were all over the Blues in round 16. They won by 11. In round 20, the Lions locked the Swans down to win by four points. Skipper John Murphy had 32 kicks and Gary Wilson was immense in helping the Lions hold on after the Swans trailed by five goals with 10 minutes to play. Uh, it was another similar game the next week against Essen. Then Russell Crowe, Kevin O'Keefe and John Murphy were instrumental in building an early lead and the Lions were lucky to hold on, winning that one by 23. 
Uh, for three quarters against the Cats, Fitzroy was second to the ball, but had wasted their opportunities, especially in the third, kicking four goals nine. But then upstep John Murphy, that captain courageous, uh, yep. and O'Keefe again. Uh, with O'Keefe running and weaving around Cats players with ease to snap a great wrong-footed goal while Murphy was everywhere. His every kick finding a target. The Lions kicked seven goals to three to end the game and their season on a high note. Nice. Um, interesting. Yeah, okay, there you go. So lead goal kicker for Fitzroy this year was Gary Wilson with 43, John Murphy second on that list with 33. Both midfielders. Yeah, yeah, mental. And not surprising to – you wouldn't be surprised to know that John Murphy t- did take out the best and fairest yeah. this year. Um, so, yeah, Good uh, first ca- first year as a captain. Absolutely. Love his work. So climbing that ladder to seventh now, we've got the Hawks. Uh, with 11 wins, 11 losses, and 109.6%. Coached by Jack Kennedy, of course, and captained again by David Parkin. Yeah, some debutants included Richard Zemensky, Wayne Bevan, Bodan Jaworowski, and Jeff Ablett. Bodan Jaworowski. Yeah. Nice. There you go. All right, Jeffrey Jeffrey Ablett. Yeah, not the Ablett we uh, usually know about. No. The other G Ablett. Yeah, Racehorse. Yeah. Uh, so that was his nickname. He was one of the fastest players of his era. So Jeff Ablett was known for his bursts of speed as a player, uh, winning the grand final sprint competition four times. He played his early footy with Druin before joining Hawthorne in 73. He was an attacking player who had the ability to run the ball round the wing and then put his team into attack with a big, long kick. Not as well known in his, as his brother Gary, Jeff spent 10 seasons with the Hawks as well as representing Victoria once. He played on the wing in Hawthorne's 76 and 78 premiership sides and later played with Richmond and St Kilda. Yeah. The other G Ablett. The other G Ablett. The other, Which, other G Ablett, I mean, sorry. He, how many say. games did you say he played? 200? Yeah, um, 10 seasons with the Hawks and then also played at Richmond and St Kilda. Two premierships. So he's had a... Yeah, that's represented a, Victoria. It's a, a, underappreciated. Absolutely. It's a very strong career. Yeah. But it's hard to uh, outshine your brother when, yes, he, when yes. he's that guy. The other thing I'll say is we're forgetting Peter Hudson's still not around. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, no. a lot of, there's uh, a lot of speculation that he might come back. There's also speculation that he's done with football. He hasn't He hasn't been training. Yeah, so when did he... He went out... Round one, 1972. It was, it was round one, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so season got off to a bad start with the Hawks losing their opening two games but just as the critics were jumping on the side hit back in round three by setting a new club record score against Essendon at Waverley Um, Lee Matthews played what he considers his greatest game ever he collected 42 possessions and kicked 11 goals yeah, in almost anyone's books that's the greatest game ever Uh, Charlie Grimmich Grimmich Kicking five goals, Desmar, Don Scott, Ian Bremner and Richard Zemsky all played well. In a more amusing anecdote from the match, perhaps giddy from his brother's uh, brilliant display, Calvin Moore forgot to duck and knocked himself out on a concrete roof of the players' race on his way off the ground. Mm. Um, the Hawks' score of 27-8-170 was the club's highest ever score. Yeah, wow. Nice. Um, the Hawks lost by two goals to the undefeated Blues at Princess Park in round four before atoning with a 16-point win over the Dogs at Glen Ferry the next week. In round seven, the Hawks thrashed lowly Geelong by 61 points at Glen Ferry over with a seven-goal-to-one last quarter. The following week at the MCG, they put on a brilliant display to lead at every change and kick away to a 37-point win over the Tigers. Yeah, massive. Um, Hawthorne celebrated its 
200 sorry it's 900th game in round 11 with a win over South Melbourne um, this was a 43 point win which sparked a four game winning streak nice they beat North in round 12 then at the MCG in round 13 against the Demons the D's bolted to a 40 point halftime lead but the Hawks powered back into the game in the third kicking 5-8 to 2 points and in a gripping last quarter the Hawks 6-4 to the Demons 4-5 to prevail by 7 points Lee Matthews booted 4 and was best of field and the win was also the first of 22 consecutive wins over the Demons great mm. 22 consecutive wins yeah. so at least 11 years at least till the 80s yeah Great. Hawks, uh, Hawthorne moved back into the top five when it beat second place Carlton in round 14 by 22 points. In this game, Lee Matthews was named as Rover instead of Peter Crimmins, hey. which is a bit of a changing of the guards there. Then a loss to the Bombers was followed by two wins over Footscray and Fitzroy, consolidating fifth position. The round 16 win over Footscray was notable for the state of Western Oval. Papers noting that the mud was so heavy the umpire couldn't run and no player could raise a gallop after standing in the centre without first scraping mud off their boots. Yeah, wow. There were 117 free kicks played in this match. That's the, lot, that's the most we've heard in a long, long time. But the Hawks handled the conditions better with roving duo Crimmins and Matthews relishing the heavy conditions in the 20-point win. The Age described this match as one of the worst games of football seen for a long time. <laughs> After a 37-point win in round 17 over Fitzroy, the Hawks disastrously lost the bottom of the ladder Geelong by a point. And to make matters worse, their stand-in full forward Michael Moncrief was rubbed out for three weeks for striking, leaving the Hawks without a full forward in a crucial fight for the final five. The club lost in round 19 to Richmond, so in desperation, they contacted one Peter Hudson in Tasmania and convinced him to begin training with a view for him possibly playing out, you know, playing some games. Yeah. In the meantime, the side lost to an informed St Kilda by 21, by 21 points to slip outside of the five. Now... In round 21, in a desperate attempt to make finals, Hawthorne flew Peter Hudson in from Tasmania to play against Collingwood. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't get him on Friday because on Friday night he owned a pub down in Ho- in Hobart. Yep, so he needed to run the pub. No, Norman Gunston was uh, was doing a show, so he needed to be there for Norman. So they flew him up on the Saturday morning. They got a specially chartered flight. They flew him to Tullamarine, and then from Tullamarine, they put him on a helicopter that that arrived outside the Waverley ground. That's incredible. Yeah, he arrived by helicopter, and was effectively playing on one leg. He hadn't hadn't played football since round yeah. one the previous year. Yeah, but he had a goal on the board in the opening two minutes, first goal of the game. He saw off four opponents. He kicked eight goals, three. <laughs> What a freak. However, it was not enough to stop the Hawks bowing out of the finals race. They lost this by three goals. The press labelled Hudson's effort as the most gutsy 100 minutes of football in recent history. And even if the Hawks had gotten up and made finals, Hudson wouldn't have been able to play again. He injured his knee early on and was not able to play in 73. So he played that one game that season. Yeah. And what a what a game it was as Ridiculous. well. Ridiculous. Yeah, I've just got the stats here. So 10 marks, 15 kicks, 8 goals, 3. Huge. For not having played football in, what, 18 months? Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, and not the last we've seen of Hudson. He, he will be back. Yeah, Spoilers. yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the last round, 9,932 people turned up to Glen Ferry in the wet for the last match of Hawthorne's season. And while it was not known, um, it was kind of... While it was known that it might be, nobody knew for certain that this would be the Hawks' last ever game at Glenferry Oval. 
Uh-huh. I can tell you it was. Yeah. Uh, but no one knew that because they hadn't made that decision yet. Yeah. After scores were level at halftime, the Hawks won the match by 37 points. Moncrief on his return from suspension kicked six goals and Matthews three. So were there whispers? Did anyone like... Well, yeah, the club be- was in discussion with the locals and there was all these plans about you know shifting the ground around. And yeah, because, well, there's no space, right? No, they so they really wanted to shift the, the way the oval was orientated. So they could put more stadiums in, yeah, they, they could, yeah, but just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I'm assuming like there would have been a fair few people at that last game being like, we don't really want to go see, but we'd better go because it might be the last time we can. Yeah, and look, we'll talk more about their move yes. away from Glen Ferry yep. next season. So uh, Hawks lead goal kicker in 73. No surprise to know it was lethal with 51. Michael Moncrief second there with 39. And the Peter Crimmins medal in 73 went to Don Scott. Yep. Yeah. So... Uh, top of the losers table in sixth spot here uh, were North Melbourne, those shin boners, with 11 wins, one draw, 10 losses, 97.6%. So a couple of changes here. Coached by RDB, Ronald Dale Barassi. Convinced to come back, signed his contract on a uh, serviette at a, yes. at a restaurant. And captained by Barry Davis. Yeah. Um, so Barassi was kind of their dream coach when, um, if you remember a few years ago, Alan Aylard had kind of launched North Melbourne's five-year bid for a flag. Yep. And during the 72 season, they were having a discussion at the end of the year about, you know, who do we get as coach? They drew up a, a dream list of who they want, Barassi being at the top. Um, they went and kind of approached him and, and it seemed like he wanted to get back into it. So they approached him, they talked about this 10-year, this plan to get all these rec- recruits in and these veterans and he, he bought in saying, yep, I'd love to. Amazing. Um, some really big debutants. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about debutants. Yep. We've got Richard Mikhailczyk. I'm, I'm saying that wrong. M-I-C-H-A-L-C-Z-Y-K. Um, he's the uncle of Dean Cox. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've got Daryl Sutton. And we've got two I want you to tell us a bit more about. Wayne Schimmelbush, Schimmelbush and Mick Nolan. Okay. So let's start with Wayne Schimmelbush here. So, 179 centimetres tall, 74 kilos. Uh, Slight. Slight man. Yeah. He was recruited in 73 from Brunswick Football Club in the the VFA, where he'd played mainly as a ruck rover, possessing an abundance of skill and drive. So, Schimmelbush, he seemed to know no fear, regularly risking serious injury for the sake of the team by hurling himself into intense physical contests against bigger, brawny opponents. He won the JJ Field Trophy as the VFA second's best, second's best and fairest in 72 before crossing to North. And then Mick Nolan, uh, very different story here, 194 centimetres and 135 kilos. He was dubbed the Galloping Gasom- Gasometer by Lou Richards. Yeah. At the time, he was the heaviest ruckman to play VFL, AFL football. He was nevertheless surprisingly agile and regarded as one of the best palming ruckmen of the 70s. Nolan had a long kick and was unusually effective for a big man in picking up the ball at ground level. He was recruited by North from Wangaratta Rovers and made his senior debut in 73. Uh, North Melbourne Rover Barry Cable said that he was the best tap ruckman he'd ever played with because of his ability to palm the ball directly into those beautiful hands. 
Yeah, um, they're not the only debutants though for the club. Let's talk about yeah. the other ones they have. So Doug Wade, yep. rich uh, Geelong champion goal kicker, he joined on October 11 for several reasons. One being that he actually lived in Melbourne. Yeah, so he used to drive down to Geelong to train. The second was he sold, he was sold on the vision of working with Barassi to get him to the team, uh, but the money was the other thing that got him yeah. over the line. This big big wad of cash. Um, he'd won a flag with the uh, the Cats, so he was looking for a bit of a challenge. Um, John Roundtail was. Very disappointed at South Melbourne with the dismissal of Norm Smith. Um, he was also wooed by money, claiming that he would have made more in his first year at North than all the other 10 years he'd had at North at South Melbourne. Um, the other thing was Norm Smith was a big advocate for Mopsy Rantel. Yep. Um, and Norm Smith had actually been brought to North Melbourne at the start of the season as like an advisor. He was going to be ah. on the board and selection committee. Ah. He didn't really get to do much, but one of, his, one of his pieces of advice was you should get uh, John Rantel. One of his pieces of advice is to Ron. So they're working together. They were. So which Ron actually they, brought him over. they had their space, yep. which they needed, obviously. Yep. Yeah. He'd come across, he was going to be chairman of selectors or on the board of selectors and to be an advisor. Um, didn't do much of that, obviously. No. Um, and the last player of that three was Barry Davis, who took his time considering the offer. Um, he didn't really consider the money as much, but having fallen out with Essendon coach Des Tudnam, he was looking for a fresh start and decided to join North Melbourne in the end as well. Yeah, wow. What an absolute coup for North. North also went after Carl Diderich. Yeah. And we're close to getting him, but he played North Melbourne off against the Demons, and that's how he was able to get all that To money. get a bit more cash. Yeah. And it sounds like, really, they didn't need him in the end with Nolan and, and Schimmelbush coming. Yeah. yeah. The other interesting story is um, Dean Cox's uncle, uh, Michael Michalajic. Um, so he'd gone from East Perth and signed with West Adelaide, mm-hmm. but then North decided they wanted to get him from West Adelaide. Uh, so they had to work out how to get a transfer from West Adelaide. So in the end, Ron Barassi flew to Adelaide. He did a charity gig mm-hmm. with all the proceeds going to Adelaide, to the club. Um, and because of that, they gave the release of uh, this player to come and play with North Melbourne. Really? So he was sort of just did a bit of charity work yeah, for Yeah, he them. was MC at like some bingo night where him and a race caller... Um, Bill Collins put on a show at the Colonial Restaurant. Amazing. Yeah, interesting. All right, round, round one. Wade, Roundtail and Davis all made their debuts in a new look at North Melbourne side that took on the Hawks and they started well. The teamwork more evident than the past years and having Wade as a focal point up forward, uh, it made a big difference. He added five goals, but it was also players like Barry Goodingham and Rob Peterson who helped North steady in the third quarter and they ran out 28-point winners. A first-up glimpse of things to come under Ron Barassi at North. Mm. Round two, they came up against his old team, the Blues, who accounted for the ruse this time. But this didn't stop the excitement catching on at North Melbourne. Um, the biggest crowd in some years turned up at Arden Street to watch the round three match against the Lions. The Ruse held a two-goal lead at half-time before they did well into the th- uh, before they did well into the wind in the third quarter to stay with the Lions. But it was the last quarter where they took the game on. Randtell overshadowing John Murphy and Barry Davis was an inspiration around the ground as the Ruse hung on by one goal. Nice. It's always in those games. It's if you can hold them against the wind. You've got to cover Yeah, yeah. Round four was full. Was the full extent of uh, North Melbourne's recruiting on display. They took on league powerhouse Richmond and really showed them up. They way kicked a couple of goals. Davis leading by example as captain. Rantel was among the best. The Roos overcame a 16-point halftime deficit to kick six goals to two in the final quarter and win by 20 points. And this is what would have had the clubs shaking in their boots at the About thought of this. these yeah, yeah. super teams where you can just bring in all these champions. Yeah. And... And Kangaroos having come last last season, so suddenly you know, they're knocking off the one of the premiership teams yeah. or one of the best teams. So 
what's going to happen. Round six for the first quarter and a half at Arden Street. The Swans ran circles around North Melbourne. Uh, and it took some football chess positional moves by Barassi for the Roos to actually play their own brand. But after halftime, uh, they kicked seven goals to take charge. Kekovic with five and the Roos ended up 44-point winners. In round eight, the match against the Bulldogs ended in an eight goals, eight behind draw. Eight goals, eight behinds each, which was amazing because the reserves had played earlier that day and also played out a draw. Really? Yep. Different score, but two I was gonna, draws. If you were about to say that both games were eight go- goals, 18 eight, That would have been amazing. No. Yeah. Um, the reserve score was 16-7 to 15-13. Okay. Uh, round nine, the quirkiest goal kicked in the game between Geelong and North Melbourne just before half time. Uh, the ball was about to go out of bounds when it ricocheted off the boundary umpire uh, Greg McQueen's boots into the arms of Wayne Schimmelbush, who handballed over the top to Doug Wade for one of his six goals against his former team. <laughs> uh, Kangaroos winning that game. Against the Saints in round 10, the Roos charged home in the second half with seven goals to three. Barassi's second game against his old side, Carlton, was a spiteful affair. Starting with Brent Crosswell, who got sent to hospital with a broken nose after a clash with Sam Kekovic. Robert Walls was also ironed out by Phil Baker. The Blues were down to 16 fit men later on when Greg Kennedy suffered a fractured cheekbone and Greg, Gary Crane had concussion. So it was no surprise the Roos ran out eight points winners. Yeah. In round 16, the Roos played an absolute corker with the Pies at Waverley. Uh, and although Doug Wade started poorly, he kicked one goal, two from four shots on goal, and even had his hand trodden on, um, but he got back into the game. After trailing by 25 points at halftime, the Roos fought back to be only one point behind late. Uh, and Gary Cowton took a mark, passed to Phil Ryan, who went forward to Wade. Wade was given a 15-metre penalty, and the siren rang as Doug Wade ran in to take his kick. He didn't hear it, but it didn't matter as he kicked truly, sealing the Ruse five-point win over the Magpies. Nice. Round 19, the first of these... Visits? What does that mean? Sorry, have you got round 19? Have you got AFL tables right up? I do. Hang on. I can get... I've just got the team. Oh, I'm here. Uh, round 19, the Roos took on the Dogs and they scored a thrilling six-point victory, uh, a win that had the resurgent Roos within striking distance of the top five. Doug Wade's bag of seven goals included his 900th in league football and that was ultimately what the difference was in this win. Uh, the Roos winning by six points. I said that. They survived the scare in the wet against the Cats to stay in touch with a slim finals chance but dropped an important game to the Saints. And then in the last round, they beat Melbourne when they probably shouldn't have mm. the conspiracy theory we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but all in all, a much, much better season where they have finished just out of the, uh, the top five. Yeah, probably interesting. Like, you'd be happy that they've jumped from bottom to sixth, but I reckon there would have been a lot of talk before the season. New, new coach, premiership winning coach... Uh, all these great players yeah. that they should have made finals. There would have probably been a bit of disappointment, but they're on the right path. They're definitely on they're the right path. They're still on the track for they? their five-year premiership in five years. Yeah, they're three years in. They've got two to go. The the white and blueprint, should yeah. we call it? <laughs> yes. So there we go. So that takes us to there. So we've got. Uh, I mean, Hold not, on, who was the yeah? Best? Not surprised. By goal ki- leading goal kicker for North is Doug Wade, of course, with 73. Schimmelbush, second best with 33. And the winner of the Sid Barker medal in uh, 73, the new captain, Barry Davis. Yes, that's an legend. Yes. Well, that guess it's the end of our show today. It does. The bottom half of the ladder. Yeah. Tune in next week to find out who finished in the top five. <laughs>
if you can do if you can figure it out you're doing pretty well absolutely uh, and yeah and lots more stories and finals coming our way can't Something wait for it to talk about Brownlow too yeah beautiful so well, well until next week hooroo to find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com you can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.